0: All of the projects that I've done start as drawings. Sometimes they stay as two-dimensional static drawings. Sometimes they are filmed and then they become, as it were, three-dimensional drawings, two-dimensional drawings moving through time. And when they become the fully-fledged theater production, then I think of them almost as drawings in four dimensions. They're sculptural drawings moving through time. But the base of them all and the starting point are drawings in the studio. And not just physically, that they start off as drawings in the studio, but the sort of strategies, the sort of looseness that exists when one is making a drawing is the way I try to work when either making a film or making a piece of theatre. The strategy for working for me is to understand that if I wait to get clarity of an idea for final resolution of meaning to be apparent before I start working, I will die of boredom or slit my throat, but nothing will arrive. And that the only hope of generating an idea is in the physical process of working, so that the starting point of a drawing may be a kernel of an image, an impulse towards an image, and in the process of drawing that first image, very often there are both amplifications of it, or suggestions of other images, or combinations that emerge, not quite by chance, but not by design, somewhere between design and chance, and it is following that middle pattern, or that middle section between chance and program that the work has to emerge. The drawings for projection are all made without either a script or a storyboard. They start with one or two key images in the film that have been sitting in my head. With Felix in exile, the starting image was the idea of a body in a landscape. And in the process of drawing that landscape on a body and then dissolving the landscape into the body, there started to emerge various elements that became the final film. The idea of following the history of one of the people who's going to die in the landscape. The idea, if it is a landscape, is it being marked with a theodolite and charted? If it was being charted, who was doing that charting? If we were using a theodolite or a sextant, which I like drawing, maybe we then had to go up into the stars. Now, these were all ideas which seemed completely obvious described after the event, but none of those ideas was apparent before I started the first day of drawing and animating. With the theatre productions, there's sometimes a knowledge of a key text that we're working with, with Alfred Jarry's Ubu in Ubu and the Truth Commission, with Goethe's Faustus. And these did give us a framework around which to start working. But the key work happened on stage, in rehearsal, or in workshopping, in working out what kinds of things could happen on stage. Taking a fairly random piece of animation, looking at that with a puppet or an actor, and from that, seeing what sorts of meaning are being evoked. And then letting the play expand from those moments to find the heart of what we were doing. I started the print of the large sleeper by marking a soft grounded etching plate with a range of marks ranging from footprints on the plate to handprints to marks made with cloths and sheets of paper. The hope was that once these marks had been etched into the copper, even though they might not be descriptive of flesh, they might perhaps be evocative of a body that's lived years and has marks and its trajectory of its history built into it. The second plate, the second copper plate in the large sleeper was an aquatint plate. Jack spent a day aquatinting or laying a beautiful range of different finenesses and coarsenesses of aquatint on the plate. And the first stage was to do spit biting into the aquatint plate, that is to say painting onto the plate directly with different dilutions of acid, and then secondarily burning in a very deep black velvety aquatint in the silhouette around the sleeping figure. The third plate was a perspex plate printed on top of the other two plates, which contained the white lines, the jarriesque circumscription of Ubu around the lying figure. The drawings for projection started out of the knowing that when a drawing was made, there was usually a midpoint in the making of the drawing when the drawing was at its most radiant, and that the act of completing a drawing usually led to the act of tying it down, constraining it, And I started filming the drawings to try to capture the process of what it was that happened when a drawing was being made. So the initial pieces of animation simply consisted of a drawing coming into being so that you could find and capture, even if fleetingly on the film, that midpoint or that section where you're not terrified of losing something good that you've done and you're not terrified of losing the initial start of the drawing, which may or may not be promising, but that the drawing is flowing in its own life. And when I started filming these drawings... Under construction, that freed the drawings enormously because it meant that every stage of the drawing was provisional. One didn't have to think, oh, I'm working towards an end final product. You're saying, well, there will be an end stage of the drawing when I stop drawing it or filming it, but that in terms of the film, each of those fragments or moments of movement is as important as another. And all the drawing is then provisional, and none of it has to be taken as conclusive. There are very few drawings which are done which have a clear sense of a meaning behind them, which is to say there are very few in which I know in advance a meaning I want to express. It is rather a much more vague hope that in the process of making the drawings, things will emerge which I don't anticipate, which will start to give a coherence or a meaning to the process of making that drawing. I think that scale is less important than it might seem. For me, I think the important thing is that most of the drawing happens somewhere around the shoulder and that there's a possibility of working quite finely, even though one's working with a body or a shoulder movement, or on a very large scale. But that as soon as the work starts being done with the knuckles, as soon as it starts becoming a cramped hand movement, whether one's working on physically a large sheet of paper or a small sheet of paper, scale starts intruding. And that has to do with scale of the kind of mark and where the impulse for that mark comes from. So that even if I'm working with a a very fine piece of charcoal or a fine pencil in a small detailed area, I find that if I let myself try to do it carefully and try to do it with the muscle coordination of the knuckles and the hand, it generally becomes tight and cramped and dies. And even if I'm working on the same postage stamp scale, but can keep that sense that that drawing is happening through the whole arm or into one's shoulder, there are processes and muscle coordinates which are much smarter than one's conscious process, which enable the right object or image to start emerging on the sheet of paper. This is not to say that it's an unconscious process or that it's a automatic process, but there's something in that trained arm coordination, sometimes even working with a very blunt piece of charcoal when one's not certain where the point of it is, that allows a life in a drawing to emerge that often dies if you think you know what you're drawing and try to carry out that instruction with good movements of your hand. Between about 1982 and 1985, I stopped doing any drawings and worked as a designer for very bad films that were being made for SATV. In fact, the work was so terrible that it drove me back into my studio to make drawings, which I vowed never to return to. But what I had learned from filmmaking was a way of completely artificially creating spaces and light. The fact that on a film set you could move a wall as close or as far away from another wall, that you could change the perspective of walls, that you didn't have to worry about the natural fall of light onto a personal object, you could push a light in as you wanted to make a dramatic moment. And I suddenly understood that one could construct a drawing and the space in a drawing and the light in the drawing in the same completely artificial way. The first drawings that I did when I started going back to my studio used this principle of being able to shift perspective, not have a single vanishing point, but maybe a multiplicity of vanishing points, of being able to have a shadow on one side of one person and on a completely contradictory side of another object. And what this did, was gave a looseness and an openness to constructing a world in which the drawings could happen. It was both much more flexible than the formality of the first monoprints I'd done and also had possibilities of far more complication and complexity than the second series of etchings, little morals, which simply used a single horizon line to define space. In the drawings I was doing around 1985, and in fact continuing to this day, which were charcoal drawings on sheets of paper, one of the things that drew me back into drawing in that way of drawing was the fact that with charcoal and with charcoal dust, and working with charcoal dust with a brush, and working with an eraser into that, there was a flexibility and a speed of work which meant one could draw almost as quickly as one could think. When I was working with oil paint one of the problems was that to change anything, to move a figure from one side of the canvas to the other, to actually rethink a whole structure which had been carefully evoked on the canvas was extremely cumbersome and difficult to do and a decision would have to be made and then the process of executing that decision would begin, whether it meant first waiting for a layer of paint to dry first obliterating the paint with another color and then moving it, it became a very convoluted process for me. Whereas with charcoal and working with charcoal, dust and eraser, there's a possibility of altering or radically restructuring or finding a drawing in the process of making it, which coincided with the indecisiveness and lack of clarity in my own head about each picture as I was making it. So each drawing was able to find itself in the process of being made rather than being known in advance and simply being executed the way I killed many paintings. Growing up in Johannesburg as a child, I suppose I always had the feeling that I had missed out on a real landscape. A real landscape was woods and trees and meadows and streams, the sort of landscape you found in English children's books based on English village life, which was nothing like the dead, dry, waterless landscape around Johannesburg. And for a long time I felt I'd missed out on what it was to have a real childhood landscape, and it was only when I started drawing the landscape, almost as a revenge against its nothingness, that I felt able to really enjoy the landscape around Johannesburg. In terms of my life, there's not very much to say in that the nursery school, the school, the high school, the university, the art school, were all in one very small area of Johannesburg. I studied politics at university, and then at the same time I was doing theater in the evenings and part-time drawing classes, and felt for a long time I ought to decide between these different fields of activity, drawing, theater, filmmaking. But in the end, I think through a sense of inertia, was unable ever to make a concrete and clear distinction. At university, I studied politics, but at the same time I was working at the Johannesburg Art Foundation under Bill Ainsley, first as a student and then as a teacher of etching. And the first body of work that I did were in fact graphics of different kinds, linocuts, monoprints, and etchings. And the charcoal drawings came out of the etchings rather than the etchings being connected to the charcoal drawings. I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of my work is monochromatic, why color creeps in but never has a very prominent place. The primacy of etchings was very much the way I started working, from series of different small etchings and expanding some of those etchings into drawings. And that was 20 years ago. And my most recent project, Ubu and the Truth Commission, a Theatre Production, in fact also started as a series of etchings. The first set of prints that I ever showed was from an exhibition called Exhibition at the Market Gallery in Newtown in Johannesburg, which was a series of monoprints which were done on copper plates with the plates being covered with black ink and the ink removed primarily with thumbprints and pieces of cloth. And they all, I suppose in one sense, had a reference in Goya's bullfighting series with a central pit around which spectators were watching a dramatic event. They were partly self-portraits. There was myself in them. There was Anne, my wife, in them. There were anonymous spectators. And they had to do with a combination of the pleasure of evoking flesh through something like a palm print or a handprint. So it was, in a sense, flesh being evoked by flesh itself. So there's a sensuous element to the pleasure in making them, allied to the fact of being able to construct dramatic moments, small plays, monologues on these plates. The ink on the plates dries fairly quickly, so there was about a four or five hour window for actually making the print and printing it before it died out. So it was one a day. Each day a new scene had to be performed on the plate. For many years, I'd seen the work that the Handspring Puppet Company had made with their puppets, and they'd seen the animated films that I'd made. And at a certain point, we said, well, let's see what happens if we combine the animation and the puppetry. Can they talk to each other? And we both agreed to put six months aside to work on this and ended up with a production of Wojciech. Since then, we've done Fastest in Africa, Ubu and the Truth Commission, and there's an opera in planning for 1998. What we were trying to do in these productions was to see whether using the range of techniques from actors visible on stage to puppets visible with the actors to projected images on a screen have a way of telling a story that is different simply from a film, different simply from a puppet production, different simply from actors and to find ways of saying and showing things in a, not just in a new way, but in a deeper way, in a richer way with layers of meaning which one couldn't have in a traditional theater or with a simple film. In our case, you can have someone on stage looking at a book. As he looks at the book, on the screen, you see what he's looking at, but also on the screen, that image he's looking at can change, can transform, and you then have not simply what the person's looking at, but their attitude to what they are looking at, or their fear about what they have just seen. And it was playing with these kinds of amplifications that we've spent the last four years in theater. When I was about 15, I had this fantasy that I would become a conductor when I grew up. And somebody pointed out to me that A, you had to have a musical ear, and B, you had to be able to read music for this to be even a vague possibility. I now find myself in the odd position of being about to direct opera with still those same limitations of not having a perfect pitch and not being musically literate, but fortunately having enough sense to know there will be a conductor and musical director For me, the pleasure of working with opera, or the challenge in it, is finding a way of dealing with time in opera. The expansion of one moment of someone's thought into maybe a 10-minute musical event on stage. And saying that with the use of images on screen, with the interaction of the singers and the puppets, there's a way of making that time resonate and hold its space on stage without the anxiety you often feel when you simply watch either the singer singing on stage Or the other actors waiting for that singer to finish the aria. The installations I did in Havana, at the Havana Biennale and at Santa Fe, at Site Santa Fe, I was trying to see if one could start pushing the drawings into a theatrical space. In Havana, there was a room with many windows and doors. And the strategy of making the piece was to bring under my arm rolls of drawings the Ubu drawings, drawings of a man against a black background, and then expanding this black background and the white Ubu jarry drawings around it in situ in Havana and in the room in Santa Fe, so that the relationship of the drawings to the room they were in, how they crept up to the doors, how the lying figure lay on top of the lintel above one of the glass doors, became part of the drawings themselves. You couldn't, in other words, looking at that installation, know what the drawings looked like as drawings by themselves because their composition, their final shape, was given by the room they were in. At Santa Fe, confronted with a very large and gallery-esque space, pure, plain, unbroken white walls, floor to ceiling, 20 meters long, it was a slightly different game. It was trying to find how to have the drawings of the figures not turn into tiny postage stamps in that large expanse, and also to see what does it mean if one paints a huge section of this wall with a matte black paint and puts a small dance in white chalk in one corner of it. In both Havana and Santa Fe, there's a video element, some of the animation from Ubu and the Truth Commission, the play, And what I was starting to work towards with those two installations was a way of making the actual television monitor into part of the drawings, in this case sculpturally, by placing the monitor not on the usual stand, but onto a tripod, which represented the object itself being shown on the television set, which was Ubu skeleton as tripod. When you looked at the screen, you saw the tripod moving, and then you realized that the screen itself was, as it were, the head of the tripod installed in space. (laughs) one has to find, I suppose, key moments which changed or which defined how I was going to spend years of my life. I think it would be a challenge that Bill Ainsley threw out to me when I was a student at his art school, when he remarked that someone had said to him that it was interesting that in South Africa, that would have been then in the early 1970s, only black artists knew how to deal with the human figure, and that white artists were all doing abstract or very removed work. And the challenge he gave us as students at the school was to spend some weeks doing figurative work. But allied to that challenge was the experience I'd had of watching Dumile working with charcoal on a large scale, also in Bill Ainslie's studios, sometime earlier in the mid-1960s, still a child. And the extraordinary power that these early Dumile drawings had, I mean, far beyond anything he did when he left South Africa, stayed with me and in a way still haunts me and makes me understand that it is possible to generate extraordinary images with this very primitive material, sheet of paper and a piece of charcoal. Obviously, particularly growing up in South Africa, where there was such a strong political presence of the world around, the artists who had dealt with that, whether it's the Russian revolutionary artists or the Sachlichkeit artists in Germany or the German expressionists, were the people that I looked at a great deal. And although there were artists like Matisse, whose work I completely loved, their way of dealing with the world, their detachment from the political and the immediate, just did not seem possible for me. It's not a prescription, it was simply a description. It would not have been possible for me to work in that way, and that's something I regret. Working with the large cut-out and torn sheets of paper was, in a sense, trying to find some common ground back towards uh, people who worked, as I described it, with art in a state of grace, in a world removed from the pressure of having to bring the world into the works being made. If I had to choose one or two artists whose work both I love, but more than that, who, whose work I suppose I tried to emulate in trying to find out how they had made the work, what was their relationship to the world they were drawing, then certainly people obviously like Goya and George Cross and particularly Max Beckman come to the front. But I think one's constructed by much more than the two or three obvious artists but by odd details of different people, by seeing small detail in a Chardin painting, by looking at the way that Watteau uses figures in a landscape, by seeing the way that Tiepolo can paint a huge blue sky. And it's constructed out of a range of things one has seen, and obviously not just of other painters, but very much other photographers, so there's as much a homage to Rodchenko as there is to Beckman in work that I would do. The images of films like, Uh, Man with the Movie Camera by Vertov is as much part of my construction as someone who spends his life making drawings as the drawings of George Cross. You know, it would be very difficult to, to unpack exactly which are the significant moments of seeing or hearing or reading things which account for different foibles or ways I work in the world, but there's no doubt that I and other people obviously are all constructed by a constellation of different things read or seen or heard or observed. The landscape around Johannesburg is determined primarily by civil engineering detritus, by the residue of different interventions of man onto the landscape. Pylons, abandoned concrete pipes, half-built highways, abandoned mine tailings and mine dumps. This does two things. It gives you a very strong visual language for the landscape, because in many ways the landscape draws itself. There are the straight lines, the linearity of pylons, it's not a landscape that's defined by streams or woods or mountains. It's defined by these very mechanical interventions into it. For better or worse, I suppose that most of my work has either been about or come out of Johannesburg and the area around it. Both directly in the Hogarth in Johannesburg series. In the set of etchings based on Hogarth's industry and idleness, I added drawings which were based on hobos living on the pavements around my house in Bertram's. The fish and chip shop sign that emerges in the series of prints was the fish and chip shop around the corner from where I lived. But also more, I suppose, more metaphorically, it has to do with a rather desperate provincial city, which Johannesburg is, with the big chip on our shoulder of always assuming we're not as smart or as up-to-date as people who live in the center in America or in Britain and having to deal with the weight of what this distance from the European center meant, and with the weight of what Europe is sitting on our shoulders in Southern Africa. So although the direct subject has not been colonialism, colonialism has been implicit in a lot of the work that I have done. There are three large silk screens, Art in a State of Grace, Art in a State of Hope, and Art in a State of Siege, which were produced in 1986. This was the year of the Johannesburg centenary, and the first one, Art in a State of Siege, which was a satire of Johannesburg businessmen, was meant to be pasted up on the walls of Johannesburg, but that piece of guerrilla theater never happened, and it existed just as a rather sedate silk screen. Art in a State of Hope referred to the hope of the great utopian socialists and communists at the time of the Russian Revolution, that art was going to transform the world. Art in a State of Grace referred to those people who felt that art could remove itself from the problems of the world and simply be concerned with transcendence and beauty. And the third category, Art in a State of Siege, which is where I placed myself and understood my work to be, was working in an area both where you had to keep some sense of hope, but you couldn't be completely utopian the way the artists had been at the turn of the century, nor could you be completely nihilistic or removed from the world as in Art in a State of Grace suggested. So Art in a State of Siege was, as it were, a kind of manifesto of where I saw myself working in the mid-1980s as South Africa was entering its states of emergency. Little Morals was the second series of etchings I did. It was a series of 40 postcard size prints they came partly out of a piece of theatre called De Kitchening, which I'd made with Junction Avenue Theatre Company, and they were a schematic representation of different interaction between masters and servants, maids and madams, a woman in her bath, domestic abnormalities, a lion on the sofa, a man doing his jogging around the sitting room. And they had to do with a minimal horizon. In the first set of prints I'd made of exhibition in the pit there was a three-dimensional space evoked by a simple perspectival drawing of three walls. In Little Morrows, that became simplified into a single horizon line on which these miniature dramas were drawn. The drawings of large heads and of some irises started from seeing in an Italian art shop some fantastically beautiful pigments. And I thought, well, just as objects and as colours, these pigments are so remarkable that I must try to do something with them. So I brought the pigments back to Johannesburg, mixed them up, and as it were, started with large areas of flat color. I painted onto sheets of paper and then said, with these extraordinary colors, what can I make? And the first thing I made was a series of drawings of irises and then a series of drawings of large heads. And it wasn't so much that, oh, suddenly I'd put color into the drawings. It was rather that I'd started with color and then deformed that color into the usual charcoal drawings I did. When I started working on the large etchings of the iris and of the etchings of the head, the principle of working was similar. With the heads, in fact, was done with torn out, cut out sheets of paper, which we inked flat colour onto and then printed a black sheet on top, the same way I'd worked with the drawings with sheets of coloured gouache, which I would draw on top of the charcoal. With the etchings, we didn't actually cut out sheets of paper, but inked different aquatinted plates with colour, but was able to try to use colour in the same primary and direct way that the gouache, drawings had begun. It took a long time for me to be able to accept the color in those etchings. It seemed very much too bright and too brilliant for me to deal with. And I think I do have a problem of working with color and always need to find strategies and subterfuges to bring it into the work. The torn out sheets of gouache was one way of working. Flatly coloring sections of aquatint was another way of doing all different ways to avoid the responsibility of having to put paint on a brush and in the moment try to assess colour on a canvas in front of me. The series of colonial landscape drawings came out of the production of Faustus in Africa, the theatre production. More specifically, the drawings were based on engravings from books of explorers in Africa in the 19th century which is a whole series of transformations, because you have an explorer in Africa, or a traveler, who does a small sketch, which gets sent back to Britain, which in turn gets changed from that small sketch into a dramatized engraving by a professional company of engravers, which is then printed in a book and returned back out to the colonies to South Africa, where with the aid of that book, we see the continent for the first time, or we train ourselves how to see the continent. I was interested in doing drawings based on these engravings, enlarging the copper plate engravings to large-scale drawings, and then showing by means of the various red marks and theodolite markings and markings on a ground glass in a camera the different points of intervention that we have made in how we look at that landscape. I think in many ways the large Ubu drawings are autobiographical or certainly are self-portraits, but in a way that's possible because they didn't start off as that. I wasn't saying how do I do a new drawing of myself? How do I show who I am at all? I started off saying I need to do a drawing of Ubu. I don't have an Ubu present. I will have to stand in for Ubu. And because I'm not being myself, I can be ridiculous, I can be grotesque, I can dance, I can jump, I can parade, I can ride a small child's bicycle, and always with the idea that I was doing a drawing of Ubu. Whereas if I decided, well, I'm going to do a self-portrait of myself, you know, I'm going to do a self-portrait, there'd have been a complete self-consciousness about how do I want to present myself to the world? Do I want to be sitting? Do I want to be standing? Do I want my hand under my chin? Am I an artist standing at the easel, looking at the easel? And a whole series of self-conscious constraints would have come in and changed the nature of what I was doing. I think it's the same way that many people who are very self-conscious about themselves can act with great abandon because they feel they are doing it in third person. The drawings I suppose I always have to try to do in the third person, not with regard to how does this present me, am I holding my stomach in and are my buttons straight, but rather this is another person who is doing these performances, who is doing the drawings for whom those rules of decorum ought not to apply. With the large Ubu drawings, I was trying to find a way of drawing full-size human figures, but without it becoming too descriptive, keeping the looseness and the roughness that existed in the small etchings, a looseness and a roughness that had come because the thumbprints and the handprints were too large for the figure they were trying to describe. And the starting point for these drawings was laying sheets of paper out on the floor and marking it in all sorts of different ways, encouraging my children and my cats to run across the sheet of paper having first stepped in trays of charcoal dust pushing a small bicycle around and around on the sheet of paper covering a rope with charcoal dust and walloping the sheet of paper and into these marks and into these bruises on the paper gradually pulling the shape of the figure into its black silhouette. When I went to Jack Sheriff's studio to do the large print of the sleeper my question was how to try to find a way at full size to work again with soft ground but with the looseness that had been possible working on a much, much smaller scale. On the small scale, a thumbprint is the size of a whole buttock, for example. If you're working on life-size, a thumbprint is the size of a thumbprint. And so different ways of getting a loose and rough, fleshy mark into the plate were necessary. The print of the large has its origins in a tiny print done some year before, which was part of the series of Ubu prints done at the Cavisham Press with Malcolm Christian in KwaZulu-Natal. These prints started as photographs. I was trying to work out how to show a new image of Ubu, and as a desperate starting point, I took a series of photographs of myself to say, well, let's see what a rather soft, flabby man looks like, and start with a drawing of that, and compare that to Jari's conception of the same rather rotund figure. So there was a photograph of myself lying on a table, which I wanted to transform into the small-scale etching. The technique I decided to use with the small-scale etching was a soft ground etching technique, which related to the first monoprints I had done, in which one could show fleshiness by, in the monoprint, simply lifting the ink with your hand with the soft ground etching, lifting the soft ground on the etching plate with your hand, so that the fleshiness of the figure is partly made up out of displaced thumbprints, handprints, sometimes footprints on the etching plate. Then came a whole theatre piece that came out of the etching. And from the theatre piece came a desire to look at that small etching if one worked with that life-size. I started the print of the large sleeper by marking a soft-grounded etching plate with a range of marks ranging from footprints on the plate to handprints to marks made with cloths and sheets of paper. The hope was that once these marks had been etched into the copper, even though they might not be descriptive of flesh they might perhaps be evocative of a body that's lived years and has marks and its trajectory of its history built into it. The second plate, the second copper plate in the large sleeper was an aquatint plate. Jack spent a day aquatinting or laying a beautiful range of different finenesses and coarsenesses of aquatint on the plate, and the first stage was to do spit-biting into the aquatint plate, that is to say, painting onto the plate directly with different dilutions of acid, and then secondarily burning in a very deep black, velvety aquatint in the silhouette around the sleeping figure. The third plate was a perspex plate printed on top of the other two plates, which contained the white lines, the jarriesque circumscription of ubu around the lying figure.